This is Books and Nachos, a podcast for those of us who find excitement in the pages of a good book. Fiction and nonfiction, graphic novels and more, we're here to help you find something great to read. No one pronounced Jerusalem's lot dead on the morning of October 6th. No one knew it was. Like the bodies of previous days, it retained every semblance of life. Hello, Books and Nachos listeners. This is Arnie, and I'm back with the second review in our look at works of Stephen King. If you haven't heard the podcast reviewing King's first novel, Carrie, you can find it in the archives section at booksandnachos.com. As I said in that show, over at our sister podcast, which you can find at nowplayingpodcast.com, we are watching and reviewing every movie even loosely based on a Stephen King work. I'm the Stephen King fan in that group, and so to prepare, I'm happily rereading all of Stephen King's published written works, whether or not they were adapted to screen, and I'm going to be reviewing them here on this podcast. As we're just about to start our look at the three, yes, three, screen adaptations of Salem's Lot, King's second published novel, I'm here to share my thoughts with you on this tale of a small main town besieged by vampires. But before we get into this, I also want to mention my last Books and Nachos review. On Halloween, I did a bonus review of Bram Stoker's Dracula. The more I got into Salem's Lot, the more I realized that this work, more than the vast majority of vampire tales, is impossible to discuss without getting into the great detail on Bram Stoker's first modern vampire story. But now, to Stephen King's modernization of that old tale. This is actually my first time reading Salem's Lot. Despite having a voracious appetite for King's works when I was younger, Salem's Lot is one that I never got around to. It's strange that I didn't, as I was a fan of vampire stories as a kid. I loved the idea of a seductive, romantic killer, and before I even knew what kink was, I knew there was something sexual and slightly perverted about a vampire's M.O., biting a woman on the neck. But I think there are really two reasons I didn't read Salem's Lot. The first is because it was older. When I was reading virtually nothing but King in the 80s and early 90s, he'd be coming out with two to three books a year. And it was the new books that my peers and their parents were all buying, reading, discussing, and as such, Reading King's 70s works was a luxury I rarely afforded myself, and when I did, it was based on either a gruesome cover art or a famous movie tie-in adaptation, and Salem's Lot had neither. Yet I owned the book. I've been a member of the Stephen King Book of the Month Club since 1990, and yeah, they ran out of new books to send me well over a decade ago. Salem's Lot was the third book they sent me, and it sat on my bookshelf now for 24 years. Lest it make a quarter of a century, I finally pulled the book down, cracked the spine, and given it a read. But for having owned the book for well over half my life, I didn't know what to expect. I knew it was about vampires, and that was it. But in knowing that, I was already spoiled, and you constant listener have been spoiled as well. Though I do intend to keep these reviews as spoiler-free as possible, that there are vampires in Salem's Lot was a secret at the time of the book's original publication in 75. The black dust jacket on the original hardcover edition just showed a small illustration of the town with a black, large, ominous house in the distance. The back cover copy and inner flap discussed a stranger coming to the town of Salem's Lot, and with the stranger comes evil. 
but what form that evil takes is left a mystery for nearly half the book. The reader's familiarity with vampire lore, and specifically Bram Stoker's original Dracula, determines how deep into the book you get before you realize the evil is that of the blood-sucking undead. But I doubt I'm the one who spoiled this for you. This book is nearing its 40th anniversary, and in those years have come two TV miniseries adaptations and an almost direct-to-video pseudo-sequel. The art for Toby Hooper's 1979 TV miniseries, the blue silhouette of a Nosferatu-looking vampire hovering over a town, is almost certainly more familiar now than the stark black cover of the 1975 book. So thanks to the popularity of Salem's Lot, we, the first-time reader, know what's in store. That said, we're not too spoiled with that knowledge. In fact, King himself set up the first portion of the book to heavily foreshadow the arrival of vampires, at least in King's own mind. To King, anyone with half a brain, his words, would know early on that Salem's Lot is about vampires. His editor at the time disagreed and told the author he needed to break out of the mentality that he's writing for the 40,000 readers of weird tales and to write for millions who don't read genre magazines. It was advice that would shape King's writing to indeed become an author who would sell horror stories to millions of people who would never read pulp horror fiction. And, truthfully, Salem's Lot is King's first real horror novel. In my podcast review of Carrie, I said I view it more as a supernatural thriller revenge story. While there is death and murder, while there is suspense, it's not horror, not in the classical sense at any rate. But with Salem's Lot, King plunges headfirst into horror movie monsters with vampires. And King's editor at the time warned the author that this second novel would typecast King as a horror writer, but King was just happy back then to be paid to write, as well as to have ideas to write about. King has admitted in interviews that only twice in his life has he suffered from writer's block, and the first time was after he finished writing Carrie. He'd been writing steadily pre-Carrie, books that publishers turned down. But after Carrie, King found what he would later term his creative well had gone dry. So despite only one year passing between the publication of Carrie and Salem's Lot, the writing time in between was much longer. It was a conversation with his wife, Tabitha, that gave Stephen King the idea for this book. King was a school teacher and had assigned Dracula to his class as reading. In a conversation with Tabitha, the author wondered aloud what would happen if Dracula came to America in the modern day, and he quickly wrote off the idea, figuring that the vampire would probably be hit by a taxi almost immediately. It's a joke he'd later include in this book itself. But Tabitha then suggested that Dracula might not go to New York City. He might prefer a small town where he'd feel more comfortable, similar to his rural Transylvanian roots, in a place where a vampire could feed at will. And thus, like she pulled the pages of Carrie from the trash, Tabitha King again rescued a fleeting thought of King's from the rubbish and put him on the path to publication. Her suggestion gave King the inspiration he needed. Going back to something King wrote as a student in the 60s, a short story called Jerusalem's Lot, King jumped into this vampire tale. He'd envisioned the book being called Second Coming, a title that would have multiple meanings in relation to the story. However, Tabitha again intervened, saying it sounded like a tawdry sex book, so King changed the title to Jerusalem's Lot, the proper name of the town. King's publisher feared that the title may have readers think the book was biblical in nature, with Jerusalem in the title, so when the book finally hit shelves in the fall of 75, it was simply titled Salem's Lot. And truthfully, 
that is a perfect title for this book, for this is a story of a town's life and death. While Salem's Lot was King's second published novel, it's the first time King truly shows his capability as an author to tell stories of immense scale. As a King fan, I find Salem's Lot has more in common with the author's later works, like Needful Things and Under the Dome, than with his earlier works Carrie, Christine, Cujo, and The Shining. I tend to think of the author's writings in two phases, and the book It is the book that divides these phases. Before It, King's works tended to be smaller in scope. Look at Carrie, the story about a girl with powers, Christine, a boy with a haunted car, Cujo, a mother and son trapped in a vehicle besieged by a rabid dog. These narratives focus on a small group of core characters and a fairly centralized conflict. But the later books, Under the Dome, Needful Things, Tommyknockers, these are sprawling stories with a large cast of characters. Juggling so many roles in a story is tricky, and something I often attribute to more experienced storytellers. Of course, King's most notable example of ensemble storytelling is probably The Stand, and I don't overlook that as one of his earliest novels. But in context with the works I knew, it seemed the exception, not the rule. And after it, King would certainly return to smaller storytelling from time to time. It's hard to get a smaller core cast than that of his 1992 book Gerald's Game. But in generalities, it seemed to me King's scope grew larger as he became more experienced a writer. But I never realized until now that it wasn't the stand where King first stretched his creative ability by telling a story involving dozens of named characters. It was here in Salem's Lot. This is truly a book about an entire town, and through King's writing, we meet seemingly all the locals and get insight into their personal lives. There's Mike Ryerson, the groundskeeper for the Salem's Lot graveyard who enjoys his honest work. We meet gossip Mabel Wirtz, looking over the town with her binoculars and listening in on party line phone calls. There's trailer park resident Sandy McDougal, who takes out her frustration with life by beating her baby boy Randy, while her husband Royce works at the mill and drinks with his friends. Also, Dud Rogers, the hunchback custodian at the garbage dump, who gets his fun by shooting local rats while fantasizing about what local teen girls hide under their sweaters. There's former Miss Cumberland County Bonnie Sawyer, who's cheating on her car mechanic husband Reg with a younger phone line technician, Corey Bryant. From schoolyard bully Richie Bodden, to draconian school bus driver Charlie Rhodes, to grumpy milkman Wynn Puritan, to teenaged Hal and Jack Griffin, who work on their father's dairy farm, King has truly built an entire town in this book, and we spend time getting to know each character and the town itself. Through interludes, as well as character remembrances, King creates a reality for this fictitious hamlet. He gives it a geographic placement so exact you could place it on Google Maps. It's east of Cumberland and 20 miles north of Portland. The city has a history, named not after the biblical city, but, rather, after an aggressive runaway pig named Jerusalem. Over the decades, the town had grown, then burned when a 1950s fire ravaged it. In the last two decades since the fire, the town has again rebuilt, and is no different from any small main town, except in one regard. Salem's Lot has an evil history, specifically the story of former town resident Hubie Marsden. Before World War II, Hubie Marsden was a mafia hitman who enjoyed his job perhaps too much. He retired to Salem's Lot, building the biggest, nicest home in the town, built upon a tall hill, the Marsden House as it came to be called, 
can be seen anywhere in the lot. But after Hubie and his wife moved in, several local children went missing, kidnapped and killed by the murderous Marsden as part of satanic rituals. Eventually, Marsden and his wife went insane, booby-trapping the house, before Marsden blew his wife's head off with a shotgun and then hung himself from the ceiling. In the decades since Marsden's death, locals have avoided the house. Common sense wouldn't allow superstition to be spoken aloud by many adults, but the children would readily say the house was haunted. All of this, and so much more town history, is told in Salem's Lot. And yet none of the characters I've mentioned are even main characters in the story. They are all there for background and color. It is one hell of a leap of King's writing skill to go from Carrie, a story with half a dozen focus characters, to this sprawling novel. When I was researching Carrie, I read how King was unsatisfied with that book, calling it a half-baked cookie. Now I realize why he feels that way. Carrie destroyed an entire main town, but the majority of the townsfolk were anonymous. Now in Jerusalem's lot, King will again annihilate a town, and he's going to make sure the reader feels it. And, as with Carrie, it's no spoiler to say that the town is gone. King tells us that up front. In the novel's prologue, we read a newspaper article describing how Salem's lot has become a ghost town. While the fictional journalist writes in a half-joking manner of alien abduction, no reason, however absurd it may sound, is ruled out for why Salem's lot went from your standard town of 1,300 people to being virtually abandoned. This is one of the hooks King uses to foreshadow the devastation that the novel will bring. This same article in the prologue drops a lot of names. Names like the Royce McDougals who have gone missing, or Constable Parkins Gillespie, now living in Kittery, refusing to talk about Salem's Lot. Telling us who's missing and who fled again foreshadows who will live, who will die, and for those in the know, who may continue an unlife as a vampire. But while the book does have this news column early on, this is not an epistolary novel like Carrie. Rather surprising given the book's Dracula roots. No, rather, Salem's Lot is a classically structured novel told in your standard third-person point of view. Like Carrie, the book is broken down into three parts, or three acts you could say, but unlike King's novel, each of these parts is then further broken into chapters. Then the chapters are broken even further into numbered sections. One of my complaints with Carrie was the lack of a formal structure of this type made the shifting points of view hard to follow. Here, with simple numbering, King has streamlined the book's narrative style. A necessary change given that Carrie held only a handful of point of view characters, while Salem's Lot has dozens. But also like Carrie, Salem's Lot is told mostly in retrospect, before even the first act of the book is a prologue, telling of a tall man and a boy who are not father and son, but who are on the run. The man is a novelist, the boy smart, and the two are hiding in Los Zapatos, a forgotten town in Mexico. These characters are never named, but throughout the book their identities will become very clear. When the aforementioned newspaper article is published, the man knows he and the boy need to return to Salem's lot and finish what was started. From that point, the next 400 pages of the novel will be a flashback. Everything that happens in the novel clarifies this ominous opening. The prologue of Salem's Lot is so dense with names that much of the information could be overlooked on an initial reading. And I'll tell you, the moment I finished Salem's Lot, I returned and reread this prologue. Only on my second reading did it become apparent how this opening truly introduces us to characters from an outsider's point of view and sets the stage for the tale we're about to read. It's an ingenious device King uses here. For 
How many newspaper articles have you read that give one tidbit of information about a person whose name you've never heard before and will probably never hear again? In Salem's Lot, King starts by giving us a newspaper article like thousands we've read in real life, but then draws back the curtain to show us everybody in a newspaper article is a real person with their own story that 500 words couldn't begin to hint at. And I'm so glad King does set the stage in this manner, for it's quite a ways into this lengthy novel before the action begins. At about 440 pages, Salem's Lot is far from King's longest novel, but it's more than double the length of Carrie, and I think King does have some pacing problems in this book. Issues the prologue helps to fix, but doesn't entirely repair. These pacing problems occur in the first act of King's novel, containing the first seven chapters. Each chapter is named for the point-of-view character represented, and through these, we're introduced to our cast and the events which have already played out well before the book's prologue. Chapter 1 is named Ben 1. King begins the tale proper with our protagonist and our primary point-of-view character, Ben Mears, the tall man from the prologue, though it takes a little bit into the book to be sure of that. It actually took me a few pages to be sure of anything, including if this story was a flashback or if it began in Mexico and would continue from there. The prologue ends with the tall man deciding to return to Salem's lot, and then chapter one begins with Ben, who I presume to be the tall man, driving into town. King has no notation, and the dates in the book actually lead me to believe the opposite. The newspaper article in the prologue refers to the summer 1923 as being 52 years ago, which would put that article as being printed in 1975. When Ben drives into Salem's lot in chapter one, King states it's September 1975, and this made me wonder, is this a continuation of the prologue with Ben returning from Mexico? No, indeed, this is Ben driving into Salem's Lot several months before the prologue. As Ben draws nearer to Salem's Lot, so do we. When he's still outside the borders of the town in this chapter, there are no other characters. Ben interacts with no one, just his own memories. King is drawing us slowly and easily out of real-world Maine and into his fictional village. During these pages, elements of Ben's past are hinted at, and eventually we learn Mears is a mildly successful novelist in his mid-thirties, but the man is haunted. As a boy living in Salem's lot, Ben went into the Marsden house on a dare as an initiation for Ben to join a club of older kids who called themselves the Bloody Pirates. Stupid name, but it was the 1940s. Inside, Ben saw a vision of Hubie, dead, hanging from his noose. Worse, the dead man opened his eyes and reached out for Ben, causing the boy to flee and not look back. For over 30 years, Ben has lived unknowing if what he saw was the imaginings of a nine-year-old or a true vision of the supernatural. As an adult in 1973, Ben was in a motorcycle accident, and while he escaped unscathed, his wife, riding behind him on the bike, was killed. So now, seeking to return to a happier time in his life, Ben has come back to his childhood home. He intends to write a new book, and perhaps to again face the ghosts he saw in his youth. Ben even intends to rent the Marsden house, to live in it as he writes, but it has been sold. So an alternate plan, he rents a room in Eva Miller's local boarding house, a third floor room where Ben can write and look out the window and gaze at the haunted mansion on the hill. Barely settled in, Ben begins to date Susan Norton, the woman after whom the second chapter is named. By coincidence, Susan happened to be reading one of Ben's books when she spotted the author in the park. She nervously approaches him, and the two hit it off quickly and easily. With this relationship, King actually writes quite the charming romance. 
King brings just the right level of neuroses to the widower Ben and his first real relationship since his wife. And despite Ben being in his 30s and Susan in her early 20s, the romance takes its time, starting off very sweet and, due to Eva Miller's house rules, chaste. It took me by surprise when, early on in their courtship, Susan invites Ben to her house to meet her parents. It seemed like something teens would do, but they have a youthful air to their relationship. Their first date was an afternoon ice cream soda, and the way Ben gets along with Susan's father, though not so much with her overbearing, overprotected mother, makes the reader root for these two. Ben went back to Salem's lot to recapture his youth, and this is a youthful romance. And when, about a quarter of the way into the book, Ben and Susan consummate their relationship, it feels meaningful, like their love is truly taking them to the next step, drawing them closer together, and not just a biological urge being fulfilled. But the relationship isn't clean. Susan's been dating a guy named Floyd Tibbetts for some time when Ben rolls into town, and Floyd was one of the bloody pirates who goaded Ben into going inside the Marsden house all those years ago. More... Susan's mother, Ann Norton, disapproves of her daughter, an aspiring artist with her head in the clouds, dreaming of the big city, dating Ben. Susan and Ann get into Rose with increasing intensity. The closer Susan gets to Ben, the more furious Ann becomes. These details drew me into these two characters, and only two chapters into the book, I had identified Ben and Susan as our main protagonists. I was certainly enjoying reading about them. We hadn't encountered any monsters, at least not supernatural creatures, just hints at ghosts. But King wrote a romance so natural and real that I was taken into the book, and, like Ben, enjoying my welcome into Salem's Lot. A large number of pages lay ahead of me, and I was content to read about these two until the bloodsuckers came. Because I was so invested in these two, I became confused when reading Chapter 3, entitled The Lot One. Here, King gives us an hour-by-hour -hour breakdown of a day in the life of Jerusalem's lot. From the early 4 a.m. rising of the Griffin boys to work the farm, to a schoolyard fight in the day, to Danny and Ralphie Glick going to visit their schoolyard friend Mark Petrie in the evening, King takes us through 20 different point-of-view characters in a single chapter. While Ben and Susan do cameo, and some danger is afoot in the form of a dead dog, the sudden change was jarring, and the easy flow of the book was lost. It doesn't correct itself much in Chapter 4, entitled Danny Glick and Others, which continues to focus primarily on new characters and minor players in Salem's Lot. For 50 pages early on in the novel, we are almost entirely removed from Susan and Ben, and given the story of two dozen other characters. When the book came out, it was originally described as Peyton Place with Vampires, and in fact, Peyton Place creator Paul Monash would end up writing the 1979 TV adaptation of Salem's Lot. King certainly is setting that all up here with the tales of a town and their personal stories and drama. It's ambitious, and honestly, it left me a bit perplexed. I thought King's instinct was right that we care more about a town dying if we know the people who live in the town. And for that to happen, we need to have a window into these characters' lives. This is a tough tightrope for an author to walk, to provide the characterizations without confusing the reader. But like any tightrope walker, it requires practice. And I think in Salem's Lot, King lost his balance and fell into the net waiting far below. I believe the issue is how King introduces us to these people. The citizens of Salem's Lot aren't introduced organically. Rather, 
It's hopping all around the town in a rapid-fire manner. For two chapters, 34 sections, we're given over 20 points of view all at different times of the day. Some of these characters we meet are going to become very important, and some are entirely incidental. That I can't tell the difference between the two may be King's intent to not telegraph who will die and who will be a hero, but with such a large cast, that type of ambiguity is a mistake. Unless you're taking copious notes, it's near impossible to keep these characters straight when they only appear for a scene and then not again for 50 pages. And, in truth, most of these characters don't matter. The farm boys, the mean bus driver, the town gossip, they're all meat for the grinder. And when they recur later in the story, I was really glad this book was available on Kindle so I could do full text searches to find out when or if the character had appeared before. These two sections were the most referenced in my reading to remind myself of characters who wouldn't appear again for several hundred pages. There's even one point in the book where King adds a parenthetical notation to the reader to remind us who Mark Petrie is and his relationship to Ralphie and Danny Glick. That is a flashing spotlight that there were too many characters introduced too quickly. I get that King is trying to give us a day in the life of Jerusalem's lot. The time marker with each section tells me that clearly, but it really had me questioning who the main characters were. That we get Ben and Susan only in passing, and that these are the characters I'd become close to in the first two chapters, had me impatiently turning every page, hoping to return to their character arcs. I think, if we came into Salem's Lot through Ben, Ben would be the best viewpoint character to at least introduce us to the other characters. Or have Ben meet Susan, who then meets the others. But while there is a little of that in these chapters, most of it is rapid cuts from characters who may not even know each other. Eventually, Ben and Susan do work their way back into the narrative. But for the rest of part one of this novel, it's a scattered and somewhat confusing group story that had me dreading the hundreds of pages that lie ahead. King's ability to juggle large casts would improve. Reading his current books, he introduces characters in a natural way that's memorable and reader-friendly. But this virtual, dramatist persona in prose is confusing. It was like an exceptionally long montage, setting up every character at the expense of pacing. It's ironic that Ben Mears would muse ruefully that, to critics, quote, plot was out, masturbation in. And then a few pages later, King would engage in the masturbatory act of introducing a score of characters that kick out the plot. This isn't to say that nothing happens to drive the plot forward. King does use some of these passages to build suspense. And when chapter 3 ends, the story has actually begun in earnest. But it's hard to realize that when the point of view character is lost in a sea of new faces. All that having been said, I have to give King one major compliment. His ability to write characters has advanced considerably since Carrie. I called out King's previous book for containing flat characters that cease to exist when not on the page, bringing up dead-end subplots for no reason I can fathom. I cited a scene with Henry Grail and John Harkinson as an example, and if you're asking who those two were in Carrie, I think I proved my point. I do think King continues to write dead-end character development, such as teen dairy farmer Hal Griffin's contempt for higher education. He never succumbs to his father's desire to attend college, nor does his death come by some ironic means such as his head being crushed by a textbook. It's just a detail to make Hal feel like a real person, and it works. In Carrie, King had one character worrying about a callus under his finger, a temporary issue for a temporary scene. Here in Salem's Lot, his new characters have lives, history, 
and it's written in a way that's as natural as your neighbor telling you about their day. In this way, King builds up the reality of Jerusalem's lot. In addition to each character feeling like they have a life off the page, the town also feels real. Everybody in Salem's lot has his or her own concerns and problems, many of which are unsavory secrets. We see adultery, abuse, theft, jealousy, and violence. But we also see contentment, such as Mike Ryerson, who's more than happy to mow the graveyard grass and bears no animosity to those who find his work ghoulish. We have empathy, as Eva Miller cares for Weasel Craig, her former lover who succumbed to alcohol addiction. And we have families who care for and support each other. While Sandy McDougal may meet her baby's cries with the pounding of her fist, we also have Henry and June Petrie, who care deeply about the physical and emotional well-being of their nerdy 12-year-old son Mark, though they're perplexed how to show it. It is hard to keep up with all that King throws at us, but as I said earlier, King wants you to feel a part of this town and to find comfort there. And it works. I spent much of my youth in a small Maine town where I have family. And if you know people from Maine, the authenticity is here on these pages. The natives have a strange, curt, sardonic nature that seems to coarsen the further northeast you go. It's very easy to believe I could visit the home where I stayed as a child and walk down the road to end up in Salem's lot. Nothing too nasty could happen in such a nice little town. Not there, King writes reassuringly. King wants you to mourn Jerusalem's lot when it dies. Had the entire novel stayed as scattershot as part one, I think I'd be the first in line to euthanize Salem's lot and I would mourn only the time I spent reading. But fortunately, King eventually lets the novel settle on a group of core heroes and the two villains that have come to make their home in the town. I just wish someone had told me that when I picked up this book. For as I read the first part in the book, I found myself growing very impatient. I knew this book had vampires. Why won't King tell me that? And why are there so many goddamn points of view? Why am I being given exact dates of when the town was incorporated? Where is the focus in this? And when does the fun begin? It begins in part two, and it never stops. Oh, the terror is set up in part one. In between the affairs, the scenes of child abuse, and the farmyard annex, we're also told about the new occupants of the Marsden house. After being abandoned, for nearly 40 years, the house and a shut-down laundromat in town sold to Kurt Barlow and his partner, R.T. Straker. A year had passed since the purchase was made, but coinciding with Ben's return to Salem's lot, Straker also returns and begins to set up residence. The men present themselves as importers-exporters who have worked in London since the 40s. They've now come to Salem's lot to retire, purchasing the laundromat to reopen as an antique store and buying the Marsden house to use as their home. The town suspects that Barlow and Straker may be gay, but none suspect that Barlow is a vampire and Straker is his supernaturally strong daywalking servant. It's through Larry Crockett, Salem Lot's second selectman and shady real estate dealer, that evil finds a foothold in Salem's Lot. Straker comes to town already knowing of Larry's willingness to bend the rules if it's profitable, and thus gives Crockett one dollar, plus a deed for property worth millions, for the two properties, house and shop. But in exchange, Larry is Straker's concierge for the town, doing or getting anything Straker or Barlow needs. These two newcomers are by far the most interesting residents of Salem's Lot, but King drips the information too slowly at first as the author keeps their vampiric nature a mystery. Early in the novel, Ben tells Susan of the gruesome ghosts he may have seen in the Marsden house 
and we know Ben thinks there's evil in the town, possibly in the house itself, but the evil is still nebulous and unformed. During the chapters chronicling the town events, graveyard caretaker Mike Ryerson finds Milkman Wynne Puritan's dog hanging from a cemetery fence post. Then young boys Danny and Ralphie Glick go out after dark and only Danny comes back home. The town begins a search to no avail, unaware that Ralphie had been offered up as a human sacrifice to an unknown being referred to only as the Lord of Flies. While the reader may not know vampires are coming, we do know Straker and Barlow are the source of these evil acts. Part of it is the authoritative way Straker makes his demands of Crockett. Part of it is they would choose to live in the supposedly haunted mansion, and part is because of the delivery made to their house. The first time I felt suspense in Salem's Lot was not when Ralphie was kidnapped, but rather a more innocuous section in Part 1, Chapter 4 that deals with furniture delivery. Hank Peters and Royal Snow, two townies that I barely placed previously, are hired by Crockett, at Straker's behest, to pick up crates from the dock. Most of the boxes are being delivered to the still unopened antique store, but the largest and heaviest of the boxes goes to the Marsden house. Despite the seemingly rote nature of the task, the large crate is cold and the men feel dread going to the house after dark. The way King writes the two men's terror and the frightful events of that night as they go up to the house made me think these two were going to have a wonderfully gruesome surprise in store. Despite not really associating these two characters, not knowing where they'd been set up, I was surprised to find myself anxious as I read on. The scene is perfectly set, and I felt at any moment Barlow himself could emerge from the crate and feed on these two men. He doesn't. This book is about delayed gratification, but it's very clear that Barlow and Straker are to be feared far more than the ghost of Hubie Marsden. And it's also clear King can make this book scary, even with anonymous men as the potential victims. But this type of page-turning suspense is actually typical of my reading experience for the majority of the book. But as I said, it doesn't kick into gear until Act 2. For Act 1, things still build slowly and our multitude of characters wander on and off the page. The evil slowly escalates through Part 1. A few days after his brother's disappearance, Danny Glick becomes sick with a strange anemia and dies a few days later. But after the funeral, Danny doesn't stay dead. Gravedigger Mike Ryerson is compelled to open the coffin, where he finds Danny ready to feed. Here, over a third of the way into the novel, is where the readers are first told outright that Salem's Law is being attacked not by the ghost of Hubie Marsden, but by vampires. The head vampire is the mysterious Mr. Barlow. Straker says his partner is in New York on a buying trip, thus easily explaining away the man's absence. The truth is that Barlow is not gone, just sleeping by day. We, the readers, first meet Barlow in an unlikely location, the town dump where Barlow seduces hunchback dump custodian Dud Rogers. Dud is not the first resident of Salem's Lot that Barlow turns, that would be Danny, but it is the first time we see our head vampire for what he is, which is, indeed, a Dracula in the then-modern world of 1975. And Barlow is very much the Dracula type. Mustached, aristocratic, well-dressed, tall and thin, Barlow speaks with a mild accent and has an affinity for predators, the creatures of the night, if you will. King has stated Dracula was the inspiration for this book. In early drafts, this character was even referred to as Count Barlow, and Barlow is a throwback to Stoker's character in almost every way save the name. 
King does borrow a bit from other iconic vampire lore, such as Hammer Horror, Vampire Comics, and the film versions of Dracula. The bite marks he leaves disappear from the victims once they die. But despite these modern touches, it's Dracula that King's returns to the most. Barlow holds the powers of Stoker's vampire. He can change forms, turn to mist at will. He can hypnotize victims with eye contact, making the feeding far more seductive, and the victim not only willing, but actually sexually aroused by the bite. Characters become erect or achieve orgasm as the teeth hit their mark. The similarities between Barlow and Dracula are so severe that I had a real time reading Barlow's words, or Straker's for that matter, without adding a bit of an Eastern European accent in my head. But, much like Dracula in that novel, Barlow is off-screen for much of the story. He's a force of nature to be battled, not a character to be explored. As this book is not epistolary, and Stoker's is, King has the freedom to show us Barlow indulging in a few kills. But the King vampire is never fully fleshed out. He's simply a force of evil. As his aide, Straker is not a stand-in for Renfield. Instead, Straker is a mysterious creature whose nature is never explained. We're told Straker is Barlow's, quote, human watchdog and bodyguard, a kind of human familiar. He must have been in town long before Barlow appeared. There were certain rites to be performed in propitiation of the Dark Father. But while called a human familiar, Straker is not entirely human. He has unusually long 5-inch fingers and supernatural strength, but is able to walk in the daylight. And it is Straker who must prepare the town for Barlow's arrival through those satanic rituals and offerings. But he's silver-tongued, and in his own way, every bit as seductive as Barlow. Straker is stern but convincing when he approaches Crockett for the illicit land deal that gains them the Marsden home. And he's a joy to read when being loosely interrogated by the town constable Parker Gillespie, or when stopping by the local market in plain view of the locals to buy roast beef, hamburger, and other assorted groceries. But while Straker gets a bit more ink than Barlow, King has the most danger come not from the two outsiders, but the town residents themselves. While King keeps Stoker's precedent that a vampire must feed on a victim multiple times to transform them, the author also realizes that in the 20th century, we need more than just poor Lucy turned into a vampire. No, in Salem's Lot, the first vampires come in just a few days and then multiply exponentially. So many of the characters I complained about earlier were introduced just so they could later have a death scene that was at least somewhat meaningful. The vampirism becomes a social disease, with children feeding on mothers, lovers and friends paying a final fanged visitation. It's said that most of the untouched were single people with no relatives or close friends in town, so it's being part of the Salem's Lot community that sentences the damned. As you might imagine, this causes the human cast to whittle down quickly and provides King with a storytelling focus for parts 2 and 3 that he lacked during the long introductions of part 1. It also allows for rapid escalation, making Act 2 exciting and horrific, where Act 1 was plotting and confusing. In Carrie, King saved all of his carnage for the final act of the novel, but here it escalates earlier, and the novel is richer and more involving for it. Also in Part 2, King quickly identifies those who would be the heroes in this novel. Again, taking from Stoker's Dracula, this book has not one hero but a cadre of men who would team against the evil ones. If equating characters, Ben is our likely stand-in for Jonathan Harker. Like Harker, Ben is the character to whom we are first introduced, and, excusing the prologue, we meet Ben as he travels to Salem's Lot, 
just as Harker first wrote of his entry to Transylvania. Both characters also end the story with a child. Harker's wife gives birth to a son, while the prologue tells us Ben has custody of the boy. Additionally, both men like to write, though Harker's is for his journal, and Ben is a published author, though his career peaked early and has not recovered since. And Ben is the first in a very, very long line of authors King would write. Misery and the Shining are perhaps the two most notable examples of King writing about others in his chosen craft, but let's not overlook the dark half, Secret Window, Secret Garden, Bag of Bones, 1408, It, and many more. It's impossible not to see some of King and Ben, and perhaps not the most flattering aspects. Ben discusses drinking, quote, a gallon of beer while writing in his hot, cramped third-floor bedroom. King wrote this book and Carrie in a trailer where he could barely afford a telephone, and the author's battle with alcoholism is well documented. During this period of his writing, he was said to drink beers while he edited his writing of the day. More, Ben is still a manly guy, despite being a writer. When Susan's father thinks of the author as a, quote, art fart, Ben's appreciation of beer and his willingness to belch in front of the old man creates an instant male bonding between the two. It's obviously King stating not all authors are erudite Harvard types who stick out their pinky when they drink, as King himself is not. That there are those similarities makes me wonder if there are others. Ben has a knack for looking back at his critically savaged book to find its problems. Did King do that for Carrie? And Ben fantasizes about a Playboy interview, a seeming marker for success in the author's mind. And it's easy to imagine a young King aspiring to be interviewed about his writing, never knowing he'd not only be interviewed in Playboy and every other major publication, but he'd become so popular as to now refuse almost every interview request. Ben is also well known for having written a novel about an escaped convict who begins a new life as a car mechanic in another state and is eventually recaptured. The book was condemned by the more conservative types for having a graphic homosexual rape scene. Are these King's early thoughts about his own Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption? But I also see a bit of idealization in King's writer counterpart in the novel. Ben is great with women, picking up Susan easily. He's also described as having strong but sensitive features. He's a looker, and from the description, I can't help but envision the character as looking very much like Rob Lowe, who would play the character in the 2004 miniseries. But before King was a published writer, he was an English teacher, and it turns out that Matt's best friend, not counting Susan, in town becomes local high school English teacher Matt Burke. Matt is much older than Ben, but witty and quick. With both Matt and Ben being men of words, they become fast friends. Here we have King, once again, writing about a teacher as well, as he did in Carrie with teachers and administrators, and would again in 11-22-63, The Shining and others. Matt is nearing retirement age, but despite his years, he's the first adult in the lot to believe in vampires. The vampirism in Salem's lot would first present itself as a bit of a wasting disease, with the victim acting odd, looking pale, sleeping through days, and having no appetite. When Matt finds his former student Mike Ryerson in such a state, Matt takes Mike back to his house to keep an eye on the man until they can see a doctor in the morning. But Mike doesn't survive until morning. Matt hears through the door Mike's visit from boy vampire Danny Glick. Afraid, Matt calls the only man who may believe the tale, his new friend Ben. As Ben is an outsider, he's a matter of curiosity to the town. The semi-famous novelist come to Salem's lot. Despite spending some of his youth in the town, he's treated not as a hometown hero made good, 
but as a strange interloper in the tight-knit community. His interest in the Marsden house raises some eyebrows in the town, and when Ralphie Glick disappears, Ben is one of the only two people Constable Parkins Gillespie interviews, the other being newcomer Straker. Now with Ben being inexplicably the first on the scene at Matt's house, and Ben being the one suggesting they call the police, I feared the novel would make the townsfolk see Ben as the bad guy. If he started spouting off about vampires, clearly he'd be seen as a nut, and perhaps a killer, and I didn't want the story to take that rote path. Some of the characters, including more competent law officers than Gillespie, are suspicious of Ben, but fortunately King steers clear of a storyline that has Ben evading both police and vampires. Truthfully, the town goes to shit so quickly that even if Gillespie had such suspicions, there would have been little time to investigate Ben. I also like that Ben doesn't immediately agree with Matt's assertion that there are vampires in Salem's Lot, but due to his ghostly experience with Hubie Marsden, Ben is also not willing to immediately rule it out. He's only pragmatic enough to tell Matt to keep it quiet, lest the town think the old English teacher's gone insane. As for Matt, I think King pulls away in his characterization. He's in his 60s, never married, keeps a tidy house where everything is just so. When the constable puts cigarette ash in a flower vase in Matt's home, it upsets the school teacher. And most to the point, he takes a 20-something Mike Ryerson home and undresses the man. It seems to me that all signs point to Matt being gay, something that they'd actually make overt in the 2004 TV miniseries. I do realize that to have a homosexual hero in a book in the 1970s would be more than progressive. It may even have alienated a widespread audience. But King writes characters expressing disdainful opinions of fags, a term King uses in the book, albeit from the mouth of a character and not in prose. Even Ben once implies the police may think he and Matt are, quote, a couple of queers. But I would have liked some more depth to Matt's characters, and being a closeted homosexual teacher in a small town would have given me that. The way Matt is written, I wonder if the teacher was more overtly gay in a previous draft, and then toned down for mainstream acceptability. But then again, in a book with so many characters, perhaps King decided not to lengthen the book further with even more details that don't serve the plot. Or, perhaps by leaving Matt about as well-defined as Dud the Garbage Man and child-abusing Sandy McDougal, that it wouldn't make abundantly clear who the story's heroes are, and who may have a better shot of living to the book's epilogue. But, for whatever reason, by design, revision, or mistake, there's not a lot of characterization to Matt. Despite his age, he's a fairly flat teacher. Unlike Miss Desjardins and Carrie, Matt has a healthy respect for his students, though he realizes they have little opinion of him, positive or negative. But why Matt is so willing to believe in vampires is left unexplained. We see him act cowardly when Mike is being attacked, but after that, he becomes a brave leader of this little vampire hunting party for reasons unknown. King even calls out in prose that Matt is this novel's Van Helsing character. No better explored than Matt is the next member of the vampire hunting crew, a physician who can provide scientific appraisal of vampirism. If Stoker had a physician in their ranks with Dr. John Seward, King gives us the counterpart in Jimmy Cody, M.D. Despite all the pages King used in part one of the novel introducing us to various townies, Cody doesn't appear until the start of part two. He's an affable, humorous character, who's also more than willing not to balk when told the vampire story by Ben. As a medical officer who examined the body of Danny Glick and Mike Ryerson after their mysterious deaths, Cody knew something strange was afoot, 
and he's willing to apply a scientific investigation to any theory offered, even the undead. That Cody was so involved in the Glick and Ryerson cases makes him seem like the only doctor in this one-horse town, even though there is a brief scene with an emergency room Dr. Groby. But while Jimmy isn't the only physician, he's the only one who matters. Heart attack, concussion, or vampire bite, Cody really expands the definition of general practitioner. It's through Cody that King brings a much-needed 20th century sensibility to the story. King discusses the autopsies that are performed on those who die under mysterious circumstances, so when Mike Ryerson rises from the grave, he has the stitches of the exploratory scars. He also examines the embalming process the dead undergo in the United States, and Cody is there to conveniently explain that it wasn't performed in these cases. After all, I want to suck your formaldehyde doesn't quite have the same ring to it. I do think Cody broke several privacy laws by revealing what he does, but this acknowledgement of a more sophisticated readership was welcome. It's too easy for vampire stories to ignore these facts of death, and that King doesn't elevates Salem's lot in my esteem. More, Cody gives us something I'd never heard of in a vampire book. A possible cure for a vampire bite. When someone is bitten, Cody immediately reacts by disinfecting the wound and giving a tetanus shot. Now, perhaps these remedies had no effect, as others are fed on repeatedly before being turned, but this again illustrates King's modernization of the vampire lore, being forced to account for a hundred years of scientific and medical advancement than was had in Stoker's day. But if Cody brings the power of science, King also has a character to bring the power of God, Father Donald Callahan. And if Cody isn't the town's only doctor, Callahan is its only priest, though maybe not a very good one. In another instance of King writing misguided religious characters, such as Margaret White and Carey, and many others in King's future fiction, the author portrays Callahan as a drunkard. More, Callahan is deeply upset by the Vatican's modern view of Catholic evil, which focuses more on the personal and social ills rather than demons and Satan. Callahan, and perhaps King, blames Freud for the changing of the devil from a supernatural being to the negative impulses in all men. Callahan feels lost without a holy war to fight, so when the other three approach him with tales of fanged evil with a capital E, Callahan finds his faith restored, if not in God, then in a righteousness that's worth killing for. Callahan is the first member of this crew that feels wholly original to Salem's Lot, rather than a lift from Stoker's vampire story. And in this 70s novel, I can't find a stand-in for Stoker's final vampire hunters, Arthur Holmwood and Quincy Morris, but most sadly, I can't find a Maria Harker, a strong female character that's also willing to fight the evil. Susan seems the character intended to feel the role of Mina, the lover of the lead hero and the only woman brought into the group's trust. Despite being a dreamer, she ends up being the most grounded person Matt tells of his vampire story. Given how quickly Matt's arguments, which really do only work in vampire tale logic, win over Ben and Jimmy and Father Callahan, it was nice to read Susan's more realistic response to being told vampires are in Salem's lot. Still, she does start to question if there is, as King quotes Shakespeare, more in heaven and earth than exists in her philosophy. But it's too little too late, and we know that from the prologue. Susan's absence in the prologue, mixed with King's flashback storytelling, tells us ahead of time that Sue doesn't survive this fight. More, she's dispatched quickly and ruthlessly. King has said in later interviews that he wanted to write Susan as a strong, modern woman, but as he wrote, 
He realized he didn't like her. He found her petulant and too old to still be living at home. Rather than go back and rewrite the character to fix the flaws, King killed her. I find it a bit ironic that King wrote Carrie partially because a friend accused him of not being able to write stories about women. And here, with the second novel, King does just that. At one point, a character thinks of Susan, she's got guts, even if she is stupid, which is a shame. I'd have preferred King write this second lead character as smart. King has also said he thought Susan's death could signal all bets were off and anyone is fair game. But it's not just Susan. All the women in this book are weak or abusive or nosy or in the possession of some other fatal character flaw. And when the book climaxes, it's with man versus man. Or perhaps boy versus man, as the final member of the hunting party is Mark Petrie, a local 12-year-old. And he's not recruited by Matt and Ben. Rather, Mark finds them. His friends, Danny and Ralphie Glick, were the first two human victims in Salem's Lot, and a resurrected Danny Glick tried to make a meal of Mark. An avid fan of horror movies and magazines, Mark is all too ready to believe in vampires, but being 12 and untrusting in adults to believe him, he takes it upon himself to fight the evil. He goes up to the Barlow house alone to kill the vampires and encounters Susan, also investigating on her own. One of them survives that encounter, and I've already told you which, but while Susan is weak and quickly rid off, Mark is actually one of the strongest characters in the novel. Here, I feel like we have a third stand-in for the author, a boy enamored with monster movies and horror. King has talked repeatedly about how he loved the monster movies of the 50s when he was a child, and Mark seems more into those classic monster movies like Frankenstein and the Wolfman than in the horror of the day like Rosemary's Baby and The Exorcist. Also smart, a good scholar, and a quick thinker, I can't help but think King is writing an idealized version of his own boyhood, though Mark is also thin, lithe, and able to best the bullies that pester him on the playground. Mark also gets many moments to shine, using his wits and his ability to survive encounters where others die. He even gets one startling victory that I'm not going to spoil for you. But yet, Mark also has moments of weakness and fear. In fact, when he's introduced in the prologue as just the boy, he cannot face his own memories of what happened in Salem's Lot. He is really close to being a Mary Sue type of character, but King narrowly avoids that type of character over-glorification. But with Mark, we see another character King will revisit many times in his fiction, that of a young boy who knows the truth about a supernatural evil while his befuddled parents and other adults refuse to believe, or even acknowledge the evil in their midst. In It, in The Shining, in Cycle of the Werewolf, and others, children would be the ones who believe, and with a limited or no adult support, they must stand up and fight the evil. Now, King has said he didn't like the portrayal of children in the horror of the 70s, especially young children. He cited Village of the Damned, Rosemary's Baby, and The Omen. King saw those movies as old people's fear of the youth rebellion of the 60s being told through a horrific allegory. King, though, saw it different, that young children were magical. He said in interviews that children are lovely people. They're innocent, sweet, honorable, and all those things. I know that's a romantic ideal, but to me they seem good. He said he mostly sees children as victims, or forces are good. Children of the Corn notwithstanding, King is mostly stuck to that view. And here in Salem's Lot, he gives us both. With the Glick brothers, we get some of the earliest victims of the vampires. And with Mark, we get a force of good. Or a force for the white. Around the time Salem's Lot was published, 
King discussed his own religious views and said, despite being raised Methodist, he didn't like the state of organized religion. He's avoid stating if he believed in God or the devil, but he had stated he believed in a white force and a black force. He believed in good and evil beyond the human plane. He said that children are the most important part of the white force. In specifically applying that theory to Salem's lot, King put an emphasis in these interviews that while Father Callahan is in this book as an agent for the Catholic Church, he does not ever state in the novel that it is the Catholic God that repels evil, and neither Barlow nor his Lord of Flies master are Satan. King uses the white and the black, and I'm saying that with a capital W on white and a capital B on black, to have a more secular view, and at the same time, a more pantheistic view towards storytelling again and again. I'm really excited by this concept's early appearance here in Salem's Lot, but in it, the stand, and especially the Dark Tower series, we're going to be talking more and more about the battle between the white and the black. Here, King uses the white and the black to explain the mysticism behind vampire hunting. While in Stoker's novel, every symbol of Catholicism was able to ward off the vampire, from communion wafers to holy water to rosaries. In King's book, it's not the crucifix that drives away the vampire, but the faith in the crucifix. King writes, quote, Without faith, the cross is only wood, the baked bread wheat, the wine sour grapes. There is one scene that breaks this view, and it's not Father Callahan, but Matt Burke that brings it on. While preparing to do battle with the vampire, Burke insists Callahan hear the confession of all the members. Matt says this will make the members, quote, go pure, washed in Christ's blood, clean blood, not tainted. It is the one moment that seems wholly Catholic, coming from a non-Catholic character, but it is a tieback to Stoker's view of Catholic ritual as a savior from vampires. More, Matt quotes, If a man dethrones God in his heart, then Satan must ascend to his position. But in those interviews, King says Christianity is present in this novel, but it isn't the most important thing in the fight. Likewise, Satanism is a term thrown around in this novel. It's said that Marsden is a Satanist, and his occultish beliefs put him in contact with an Austrian nobleman named Breiken, and Breiken would change his name to Barlow. These references, and specifically Straker's sacrifice to the Lord of Flies with his unholy Lord's Prayer, do make it seem like Satan himself is overlooking the destruction of Salem's lot. Matt explains Ralphie's death as an offering. Quote, Even Barlow has a master, you see. By the offering of Ralphie, Straker opened the door for Barlow to enter and infiltrate the town. But King pulls back from the satanic aspects of this book. While these references are made, they're just as quickly dropped. The biggest evil we meet in the book is Barlow. And if there's a higher force for Black commanding Barlow, we never see it. But in Bram Stoker's Dracula, Van Helsing does provide a lot of history about the Count and how his experiments with dark arts turned him into a vampire. Perhaps all this Lord of Flies bit is the modern counterpart, here to explain only the origin of Barlow and not to indicate a larger fight ahead. The fight against Barlow begins in earnest for the group, after their acts of contrition, when they storm the Marsden house to stake the vampire. And, in another moment that feels lifted from Bram Stoker's Dracula, they do not find the head vampire, but rather a letter addressed to each of them. This shows Barlow is savvy, smart, and observant, aware of those who would seek to undo him. 
It's in this letter we get our best insight into Barlow the character and King's view of good and evil in the book. Barlow writes, quote, The Catholic Church is not the oldest of my opponents, though. I was old when it was young, when its members hid in the catacombs of Rome and painted fishes on their chests so they could tell one from another. He says also, I am not the serpent, but the father of serpents. And he writes how Callahan bears the symbol of white, but his faith in white is weak and soft. Not his faith in God. King wrote, his faith in white. King also writes a passage from Mark Petrie's point of view, explaining why children are a force for white, though less overtly. Mark reflects on, quote, the peculiarity of adults. They took laxatives, liquor, or sleeping pills to drive away their terrors so that sleep would come. And their terrors were so tame and domestic. The job. The money. What the teacher will think if I can't get Jenny nicer clothes. Does my wife still love me? Who are my friends? They were pallid compared to the fears every child lies cheek and jowl with in his dark bed, with no one to confess to in the hope of perfect understanding but another child. There is no group therapy or psychiatry or community social services for the child who must cope with the thing under the bed or in the cellar every night, the thing which leers and capers and threatens just beyond the point where vision will reach. The same lonely battle must be fought night after night, and the only cure is the eventual ossification of the imaginary faculties, and this is called adulthood. In that passage, King illustrates how children are more in touch with the monsters, or the black, and as such, Mark himself becomes an agent for the white. This white later actually manifests itself in the novel. When facing Barlow in person, our heroes find themselves supernaturally powered from beyond. Crucifixes glow with a preternatural brilliance, and that glow runs up the body of the hero that stands against the power of black. But the crucifix is incidental. When facing the black, an axe is as able to be supernaturally empowered by the belief of the wielder as a cross. King describes the supernatural power as force, with a capital F. Two years after this book was published, George Lucas would trademark that phrase for his Jedi. But here, King has a force aid his heroes in their time of need. King describes this force in the book as, quote, not in the least Christian. The good was more elemental, less refined. When one is empowered by the force, they are described as glowing with a blue energy. A description that makes me think of the glow from that 80s film, The Last Dragon. Not a great mental image to be sure, but King's words describe it in a similar way. But the war of white versus black is not the only part of Salem's Lot that is oft repeated in King's fiction. I was struck by a couple of lines King wrote here that would later become famous in other works. In this book, to calm himself, Mark starts babbling rhymes, including... He thrusts his fists against the post and still insists he sees the ghosts. A line that wouldn't have garnered my attention if it wasn't written dozens of times in It. Then there's also when Danny Glick returns from the grave, he visits Mark Petrie and says, Let me in, Mark. I want to play with you. It's an eerie line, play being a childish euphemism for slaughter, and a theme King would revisit repeatedly. In The Shining, a ghost child asks a human to come play with me. Forever and forever and forever. And while King himself didn't take that line for his book Pet Cemetery, this line was also used almost verbatim for the film adaptation. Speaking about Danny, when his brother Ralphie disappears, Danny must live in a house with parents more focused on their dead child than their surviving one. Stories about dead siblings are rife in King's fiction. In It, in The Body, in Sometimes They Come Back, 
Pet Cemetery, even in a small fashion in the dark half. King will have stories about those who survived the early death of a sibling and the resulting impacts of the parents of those children. That Danny and Ralphie go out together, but only one comes home, is another repeated theme. One that may have origins in King's real life. Though King doesn't talk of it often, one Stephen King profile I read discusses how, as a child, King witnessed a friend struck and killed by a train. King repressed the memory and returned home speechless. This young experience has likely shaped much of King's fiction, and its first incarnation is here in this subplot of Salem's Lot. And as I mentioned, Ben is a hometown kid returning to where he spent his youth. We see that story time and again from King as well. Once again, I think of the body and it. Like those stories, Ben thinks back to his childhood frenemies, those that dared him to go to the Marsden house. Now one is dead of leukemia, and Floyd is dating Susan until Susan chooses Ben. This is a topic that King will do better. I think King glosses over the Floyd-Ben history too quickly in this book, but it's the first instance of the theme here in Salem's Lot. King even writes in this novel about how Ben's memories of Jerusalem's lot faded until he returned, and a similar type of repression is found among the children in It. King also has greasers for bad guys, and Susan does indeed hook up with such a type after she sprouts fangs, but here it's such a minor reference I'd have not thought of it had I not known of King's penchant for that character type. Even the theme of an old man coming to a small main town to open an antique shop is one King would revisit. Here in Salem's Lot, the antique shop seems foolish. It never becomes a central location, nor a major plot point in the novel. It's nothing but a cover story for the vampires to explain their activities. They could have just as easily said they were coming to retire. They are, as Maine people would say, wicked old. When I read about their antique shop, I instantly thought of Needful Things, where an evil force in the body of an old man opens a store that sells haunted items. Both stories end with the death of a town brought on by the newcomer. But in Needful Things, the store makes sense to the plot, whereas here, it seems like an aborted idea. Another repeated motif, Susan Norton has a very tense relationship with her mother. There are arguments with Ann Norton, thinking she knows what's best for Susan. That being Susan marrying safe, stable Floyd Tibbetts, rather than breaking up with Floyd to date whimsical author Ben Mears. The mother-daughter spats Echo Carey, though in a less abusive and extreme manner. Having just read Carrie, the similarities were unmistakable. Child abuse is another topic that King would return to many times, including his next book, The Shining. And boy, can I not help but think of The Shining almost constantly when I read Salem's Lot. An author goes to a remote location to write a book, a location with a large structure that overlooks the area. Here is the Marsden House, but in his next book is the Overlook Hotel. In the Marsden House, Ben has a vision of corpses that may have been imagined, or may have been spectral. Again, a plot point in The Shining. Most telling, there's even a time in Salem's Lot where Ben and Matt are talking over beers, and Ben states, quote, There may be some truth in the idea that houses absorb the emotions that are spent in them, that they hold a kind of dry charge. Perhaps the right personality, that of an imaginative boy, for instance, could act as a catalyst on that dry charge and cause it to produce an active manifestation of... of something. I'm not talking about ghosts precisely. I'm talking about a kind of psychic television in three dimensions. Perhaps even something alive. A monster, if you like. 
Isn't that just a plot summary in brief of The Shining? With all of this, I can't help but see Salem's Lot as a middle child, stuck between King's more famous works Carrie and The Shining. King said that when Salem's Lot was released, it was well received by his relatives and not too many other people. He seems to forget it was nominated as Best Novel World Fantasy Awards in 1976 and nominated for all-time Best Fantasy Novel in 1987 at the Locus Awards. No doubt, this book has its ardent supporters, and King himself still lists Salem's Lot as one of his novels that he likes the best. But to me, Salem's Lot is fun fluff without any of the important resonance of many of King's books. By doing such a direct aping of Stoker, and by introducing and then glossing over so many themes and ideas that he would revisit better in later works, and completely dropping some subplots such as the Satanism, I don't see how this book can be sung such high praise. But don't take that statement as a damnation of this novel. I actually really enjoyed it. As I mentioned, part one of the book labored on considerably with too many character introductions. It started as a novel that lacked focus, another reason I can't include this book in the pantheon of quote, King's best. But I think even King knew there was too much going on in the first part, as about one third of the way into the book, King has Mike recount all the major events, just to make sure the reader can easily tell what's going to be important to the future of the story. But by part two, when King solidifies the group of heroes, Salem's Lot finds its focus. While there are sections still devoted to some of the more minor townies, the early scenes felt like needless digressions. The later sections are entirely integral to the plot, as we witness the town literally start to eat itself, the vampirism spreading like a plague. I hate to use a trite cliché, but it feels too apt to avoid. In retrospect, I can say this book is paced like a roller coaster. And I think that term's often misused. People say it just is full of twists and turns and very fast. But here, part one is the slow, ratcheting climb up the steep slope. It takes a long time, a full third of the ride, just to reach that top. And the climb is somewhat uninteresting, really. You know, there is fun to be had when you hit the peak, but to get there is a ponderous ascent where you can look around you and look at the scenery from your high vantage point, but you really await what's on the other side. But once we reach that first apex at the start of part two, we are plunged into madness and excitement. I never screamed aloud while reading Salem's Lot, but I did hold on to the book with both hands and I never wanted to put it down. As someone who reads quite a bit, and I have since my youth, I'm very familiar with the exhilaration of a book's climax. Staying up many hours after I should have gone to sleep so I could finish a book I can't bear to put down. This usually happens for the last 50 pages, sometimes 100 pages of good novels. But I can't recall the last time I felt this way about over 250 pages of a book. It took a long time for Salem's Lot to hit its stride, but when it did, it obsessed me. Any time I wasn't reading Salem's Lot, I wanted to be. I read anxiously anticipating the next page. I wanted to know what happened next. There are so many scenes of great suspense that I was fixated with reading them. One example is when Mike Ryerson returns to Matt Burke's home to feed on the man who tried to help him. Matt hears a noise in the bedroom and knows it's a vampire, but he investigates anyway. I, the reader, am anxious. I want Matt to open that door and see what awaits him. It's the same anticipation I felt when the bucket of blood fell on Carrie in that last novel. I am really hungering to see what happens next. But in Carrie, I felt King diverted too much. 
he gave us all of the next events from the point of view of everyone except the titular character before letting us get inside Carrie's view. In Salem's Lot, King again tries to prolong the magic, with Matt reflecting on a tale of fear from his childhood. But while I thought in Carrie, King went too far, here the author is doing it just right, teasing me as a reader, making me anxious for the release of knowledge that is coming. King pulls you into the action by writing scenes that are short in time but long in words, giving almost a slow motion effect for the reader. The greater the suspense, the longer King's going to draw you out to make you wonder what will happen, even if it's just a few seconds in book time. At many times while reading Salem's Lot, I felt like a ball of yarn and King was the cat. Even when the action calms down during the daytime, when the vampires are asleep, the tension is still high. Days are never long enough for our heroes to mount a decent defense, and the barren nature of the town, with the evil lying literally beneath it, creates a taut, palpable suspense. This is aided by King's unconventional prose. As he did in Carrie, King will mix quotes from great writers as well as modern rock songs, putting forth the ideas of lyrics as literature, and also relating to the reader on a pop culture level. He also continues his use of brand names, telling the reader that Franklin Bodden is smoking camels, just like you do in the real world. These brand names tell you if a character is blue-collar or white-collar, pretentious or common. Several times in the book, King would switch the narration from the standard third-person perspective to the far less used second-person perspective. King puts you, the constant reader, in the book. And in those same pages, he describes your life working the land in Salem's Lot as you have for 20 years. He also tells you in passing of major events. You can't just be a constant reader. You have to be a close reader to find out who will die, and who already died off-screen, including one poor abused baby. Like he did in Carrie, King uses unconventional writing to blindside you with developments you never could have seen coming, especially in a passage such as this. King will allow himself the freedom to write these sections in a stream of consciousness style that flows so perfectly that is more akin to poetry than prose. His words flow so smoothly while careening from one idea to the next. And throughout the entire novel, be it news articles, second person, or standard third person text, King's ability for visualization and realization of scenes puts you in Salem's lot even if you've never been to Maine. By God, that is the power of King's writing style. The man is a bestseller, but not because of the movies. The movies only exposed King to a mass audience. It's the prose that made King a must-read. The power of his ability to create a reality and then subvert it to his vision is in full effect here in only his second published novel. And there is so much that is paid off. Often, I found myself wondering why King was providing so many details about the town's background, only to have some of those details become vitally important in the book's final pages. But, to go back to my roller coaster analogy, when you step off, you realize you were exhilarated, but it was fleeting. For all the characters developed, a lot of endings feel robbed. For example, in discussing the death of Salem's Lot, King frequently references the town of Momsen, Vermont, another small town that dried up overnight. I thought it was implied that Momsen could be the precursor to Salem's Lot. Perhaps Barlow was in Vermont before going to Maine. But for the multiple references, there's never any insight into what happened to Momsen. Why was Ben made a widower when it has little impact on the character at all? And the final challenge our surviving heroes must face is a questionable fugitive hunt. 
In Stoker's novel, Dracula faces the heroes and realizes he's outmatched. He quickly goes on the run, and the heroes must sleuth out where he's gone to save poor bitten Mina. King copies that beat. After Barlow leaves a letter for our heroes, he moves out of the Marsden house and takes up a secret residence elsewhere in Salem's Lot. But where? The mystery's a bit nonsensical for such a small town, and the way Barlow's hiding place is uncovered is a bit ridiculous. One dropped reference very early on in the novel was to clue in the reader of the answer, and it's too obscure. Encyclopedia Brown would be hard-pressed to catch this one. Characters are equally left unfulfilled, such as Larry Callahan, the land baron who facilitated Straker and Barlow's entry into Salem's Lot. For all his amoral acts and complicity, Larry is turning the vampire off the page, and he gets no death befitting his setup. And Floyd Tibbetts attacks Ben, it's said he's under some kind of trance, but the entire explanation is left to our imaginations. And Father Callahan as well has an ending that is completely unsatisfying. He literally leaves town. He is beaten and humiliated by Barlow in a very powerful scene, possibly the best scene in the entire novel. Barlow doesn't drink Callahan's blood, but rather, Callahan is forced to drink Barlow's. It's astounding in Barlow's complete domination due to Callahan's lack of faith in the white. But the result of that scene is really lackluster. Yes, several residents of the lot flee vampire infestation. We knew that from the news article in the prologue. But Callahan is a member of the core group. To up and leave with no further mention in the novel was unsatisfying. In fact, it was so absurd that I turned every page for the rest of the novel expecting Callahan's triumphant return, for good or for evil. I even, at one point, started to question my assumption that Ben was the tall man from the prologue. After all, wasn't Father Callahan described as tall? Is it Callahan and Mark in the prologue? I sat there waiting for Callahan to return. And as it turns out, I'd have to wait 28 years for that to happen. But more on that in a few minutes. It isn't just Callahan. I wasn't sure about many of the characters' ends. I know that lots became vampires, but what then? Let's look at Dud, the dump caretaker. He lusts after Ruthie Crockett, and Barlow says, You shall have her, as part of the seduction to turn Dud into a vampire. Later we read that Ruthie is indeed in Dud's arms, both of them undead. But why are they together? Does Dud have Ruthie under a spell? Is Ruthie less discerning in undeath than she was in life? Is vampire life one big orgy? I don't know. Do vampires seek out in death their friends in life? What are their wants, their desires? Do they have any? I was very curious about the vampires and their motivations. What do they want besides my blood? But King gives us precious little insight. Barlow does say, There is no memory for the undead. Only the hunger and the need to serve the master. Dr. Cody hypothesizes that the vampires feel discomfort and pain, but love is beyond them. But if that's the case, why do Sandy and Roy McDougal sleep with their vampire baby in their arms? Why do the undead first visit those they knew in life? Why does Marjorie Glick, in her unlife, call out for her vampire son Danny? Why does vampire Susan take slow revenge on her antagonistic mother, feeding on her night after night rather than all at once? I have a lot of questions as to why the vampires do what they do. I suspect the true answer is because it's horrifying to see a warped, evil version of someone you love. And in so doing, King delivers horror. But it's kind of unsatisfying not to have a character-driven reason, only a writing-style reason. 
Even our main baddies, Barlow and Straker, aren't given much motivation for their actions. We are told, in passing, why Barlow chose Salem's lot, and the answer does involve Hubie Marston, but it's unimportant to King, and mostly unexplored. One analysis of Salem's Lot I read in preparing this review said that King's story stands so tall that any future author who chooses to write a vampire tale in the tradition of Stoker must acknowledge King's mastery. More, Michael Collings writes in George Beam's The Stephen King Companion that major horror writers of the past two decades have avoided writing traditional stories of vampire lore, and that it's a testament to Salem's Lot that they've done so. Here, I respectfully but strongly disagree with any analysis of Salem's Lot that deems it so important to vampire fiction produced after 1975. I don't think Salem's Lot looms large over vampire lore. It was a bestseller, thanks primarily to King's name, so it has been often read. But I rather think it's a bookend to Stoker's story, perhaps the last major traditional vampire tale. No, I don't think it's fear of standing in Salem's Lot's shadow that has caused major horror writers to avoid writing traditional vampire stories, but rather a realization that traditional vampire stories are out of date. The very year after Salem's Lot was published, Anne Rice would change the genre forever with Interview with the Vampire. Suddenly, we had an exploration of the vampire. Rather than vampire as zombie-like beast whose bite will turn you, we had an exploration of the morality, ethics, and society of vampires. Plus, with Interview with the Vampire, Rice greatly upped the always-present sexual nature of the vampire, using the allegory to explore polyamorous pansexual relationships. No, what Stoker began, King ended, but not through design and not through popularity just by the fortune of being the popular writer who had the last major vampire novel published before Rice would transform the genre. It's thanks to Rice, not fear of King Shadow, we have Twilight, the Southern Vampire Mysteries, and Anita Blake Vampire Hunter. My own reaction to Salem's Lot reflects this disconnect. My biggest disappointment was not understanding a vampire's motivations. Would I have asked that question if I'd not seen the past 40 years of vampire fiction? No. I'd have seen vampires as a ghoul, like a zombie or a mummy, killing for killing's sake. But that's not to say Salem's Lot had no impact on pop culture. I actually think Salem's Lot was very influential on the vampire films of the 80s. While Interview changed the landscape for written fiction, throughout the 80s, vampires on screen followed this faceless, inhuman form that dates back to Stoker. I can see aspects of Salem's Lot in The Lost Boys, the original film version of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and even in Blade. But I think the best movie adaptation of Salem's Lot is actually Tom Holland's 1986 film Fright Night. If you look at Fright Night, it's taken almost every aspect of Salem's Lot, boiled it down to its most basic parts, and then added a postmodern twist. But the vampire coming to town and moving into an old house? How about the vampire having a supernatural yet undefined day-walking servant who prepares the house? The locals thinking the two men living together are homosexuals? Down to crucifixes not warding off the vampires unless the wielder has faith, Fright Night seems a complete Salem's Lot derivative. The absolute biggest example of this is in Fright Night, where the vampire Jerry seduces Ed to become a vampire. Jerry knows that people laugh at Ed and make fun of him, but if Ed becomes a vampire, they won't laugh anymore. 
That scene is very similar to the one here in Salem's Lot where Barlow talks to Dud and says the girls won't laugh at Dud anymore if Dud becomes a vampire. And I also think that Salem's Lot may have in some ways, though far less exact, inspired the 1990s TV series Twin Peaks. It's another story that tells of infidelity, abuse, and idiosyncratic people in a small town under assault by supernatural forces. There's even a scene in Salem's Lot of a father, so upset over the death of his child that he leaps upon the coffin as it's lowered into the ground. It's one of the most powerful scenes in Salem's Lot, and I'll be damned if it wasn't replayed almost exactly in Twin Peaks. And Twin Peaks bears another similarity to Salem's Lot, that tale of a small town being an anachronism in modern times. While 15 years separate the two stories, King's book in the 1970s is a literal example of the figurative death of the small town. When townies aren't being fed on by the evil undead, they're leaving town with diplomas, heading for urban lands and better jobs. It's at that level, perhaps more than the vampire one, that Salem's Lot works best. As published, Salem's Lot is a fun read, but it's not a great book. When, and it's going to be years from now, I finish reading and reviewing all of King's works here on Books and Nachos, I don't think Salem's Lot's gonna even come in the top 20. It's just too overshadowed by the book that came before and many of the books that come after. King himself says he sees, quote, nicks, dings, all the scars on its hide that were inflicted by the inexperience of a craftsman new at his trade. They are there, and even more than in Carrie, they hurt the reading experience. But for all its flaws, when Salem's Lot ends, it does so with a satisfying bang. As I mentioned, when the book was done, I immediately went back and reread the opening. I don't do that for a book that didn't suck me into its world. But as for some of those unsatisfying dangling plot threads I mentioned, King felt much the same way. For a long time, Salem's Lot was the book that King repeatedly toyed with returning to in a sequel. He'd mentioned in interviews that he'd like to return to the story of the vampires, and specifically Father Callahan and what happened to the wayward priest after he left the town. Though King would write two short stories related to Salem's Lot, one a prequel, one a sequel, both of which I'll be discussing in the next two weeks in future Books and Nachos episodes, he never did write a sequel novel to Salem's Lot. Rather, he incorporated Father Callahan into his sprawling Dark Tower book series in a semi-unconventional way. Having now done so, King says he sees no point in returning to the story of Salem's Lot. In addition to continuing the story of Callahan, King would sometimes also fantasize about an uncut, extended version of Salem's Lot. In the 80s, King said, quote, Lots of stuff was edited out of Salem's Lot that the editors thought was too strong. I stood by and let it happen. I wasn't in the position I am now. Still, I never want to be in the position where I can refuse editorial advice. Someday, though, I want to do a definitive lot and put it all back in. These statements were made many, many years before he'd do exactly that, but not with Salem's Lot, instead with his sprawling opus, The Stand. There's a difference in the material cut from Salem's Lot and The Stand, however. With Salem's Lot, the editors gave King advice and King chose to follow it. With The Stand, the publisher contacted King and said, this book needs to be cut by 400 pages, you can choose the pages or we will. With Salem's Lot, it was a partnership. With The Stand, King's hand was forced. And in the almost 40 years since Salem's Lot was published, the growing length of King's current books attest that sometimes he can now refuse such editorial dictatorship. And in the 90s, he did have the clout to go back and put all the material editors cut from The Stand. But in 2005, 
on Salem's Lot's 30th anniversary, a collector's edition of the book was published. This one containing new illustrations, the two short stories, One for the Road and Jerusalem's Lot, both written by King to tie into Salem's Lot, and over 50 pages of scenes and passages cut from the final draft of the book. Unlike King's The Stand, though, this material was not inserted into the main narrative, but just pasted at the end, like bonus features on a DVD. The book was quickly snatched up, and now on eBay, the deluxe edition of Salem's Lot's 30th Anniversary Edition, limited to 315 copies, can sell for over $7,500. The less rare limited edition, limited to 600 copies, sells for over $1,500. But thankfully for us readers on a budget, the short stories and the cut material was then released again in the less collectible paperback and ebook formats. Now, the cut scenes are a combination of interesting curiosities, such as the town of Salem's Lot was originally named Momsen, which in the final version is that abandoned Vermont town, and Barlow's original name was Sarlinov. But there are also major plot points that were removed from the final book. The satanic nature of the vampires is more fully explored in extended and additional scenes. Straker hangs inverted crucifixes in the Marsden house. When Straker offers up the body of Ralphie Glick with his unholy prayer, King had originally written of an evil being who arrives to take the offering personally. Additional scenes with Straker and Barlow refer to this being often, and implies that Straker is working while awaiting some sort of promotion. Straker asks Barlow, Is it my time yet? Though we're never told if it means his time to become a vampire, to be released from a life of servitude to the peace of death, or his time to become something totally different. These are interesting details that explain why the hell Straker would sacrifice Ralphie Glick, and to what, but they also do raise more questions than this book is prepared to answer. In these scenes, Father Callahan gets a different end as well. Rather than the strange and unsatisfying boarding of a Greyhound bus, Callahan is bested by Barlow, but robs the head vampire of his kill by committing the sin of suicide. Barlow is so furious, he desecrates the body. While this may have prevented Callahan from returning in the Dark Tower series, and notice I say, may, it is a better end than the published novel gives. Though, as an aside, I think the 2004 miniseries gave Callahan his best arc for Salem's Lot, where his unholy communion makes Callahan a new human familiar for Barlow. But we'll talk about that on Now Playing in a couple of weeks. The majority of plots are tied up here, such as little abused Randy McDougal, now a vampire, getting revenge on the mother who hit him. But not all loose plot threads are wrapped up. The one I really expected to be, Larry Callahan, still is left unsatisfying. He does have an additional scene where he starts to chafe under Straker's commands, but there's no gruesome death befitting his complacency. In many of these cases, these scenes do seem cut for a reason. One complaint I had with the final novel is that we meet so many townies in part one, but Dr. Cody, an important local, didn't appear until part two. Well, there was a scene in part one with Cody, but it introduces more problems than it fixes by having Matt realize vampires are afoot far too early in the novel. These part one chapters also had more scenes of dread, reminding us early in the book that we are reading a horror novel and not a soap opera, but as that portion of the book dragged in its final edited form, I would loathe any pages be reinserted. There's more of everything. More staking of the vampires. More investigation into Barlow's hiding place. More scientific analysis of vampire corpses. And all curiosities you can go read if you're interested. And you won't have to spend $7,500 to do so thanks to the Kindle edition. 
but there are three cut scenes that really matter most. The first is Ben revealing to Susan the plot of his novel in greater detail than we knew. It was about killings occurring in a town like Salem's Lot, but when Ralphie Glick disappeared, Ben lost his taste for the story. It mirrored the current local events too closely. This also helps to explain why Ben reacted harshly and angrily when Constable Gillespie tries to peek at the pages Ben has written. In Ben's books, the killings are being done by a mad librarian, but the book's hero doesn't survive. He becomes the librarian's last victim. Not only does this foreshadow King's 1990 novella The Library Policeman about a killer librarian who is a psychic vampire, this scene also helps to set up King's original nihilistic ending for Salem's Lot. When King started writing, he envisioned there would be no survivors of the vampire attack in Maine. Not only would Susan die, Ben, Mark, and every other person would be killed. As he wrote, King found his characters to be resourceful, and King allowed the characterizations to shape the somewhat happier end of the story. But this book-within-a-book foreshadowing would have alerted a reader of the doom to come. In that same passage, King has a conversation between Susan and Ben that discusses author responsibility for what they write. Specifically, how would Ben feel if his novel inspired copycat killings in the real world? It's something that mattered in 1975, when Hitchcock was being accused of inspiring killers. And it's an argument that continues today, be it natural-born killers or Grand Theft Auto as the source of blame. But King himself has some instances with this. Having written the book Rage in 1977 under the name Richard Bachman, a novel now out of print at King's request due to the similarity to many school shootings. That here, two years before Rage, King was hypothetically discussing that exact circumstance shows a very self-aware author for being so young. And when I get to the Rage review, I'm going to be examining this cut passage a bit more closely. Another future novel is foretold in a cut scene, where several townies are saying the town has a rapidly spreading disease, and the government may quarantine Salem's lot. It may have just been the conjecture of an old-timer, but it did make me think of King's forthcoming The Stand. But of all the scenes cut from Salem's Lot, there is one I wish had been kept. And I'm going to pause here, because this is a scene that comes at the book's climax. So here comes a few major spoilers for Salem's Lot. Okay, you still with me? In King's original vision, Barlow, like Dracula, held power over lower animals, the wolves, the bats, and the rats. There are lines referring to this in the final novel. And there are many comments about the rats at Dud's junkyard and their sudden disappearance. But in King's original pages, these rats become Barlow's daytime watch after Straker is killed. When Barlow's hiding spot is uncovered in the final book, Dr. Cody is killed by a booby trap. It's an unexpected and sudden end for the character, and it took me off guard as being so out of the blue. But in the original version, it wasn't missing stairs and well-placed knives, but hordes of homicidal, demonically empowered rats that killed the doctor. And it is single-handedly the most gruesome, awful, gory scene in the book. I love it! Let me read you this passage, cut from the final novel, describing Cody's death at the hands, or I guess paws, of these rats. A rat squirmed into his mouth, back feet digging at his chin. He bit at it, tore at it, and the rat squealed and writhed. The fetid taste of it filled his mouth. He ripped it away, beat more of them off, and began to crawl up the stairs. Mark went to the door and saw something coming painfully up the stairs on its hands and knees. It was brown and writhing with feet and tail and eyes. He saw a flash of something that looked like Jimmy's shirt. He went down two steps and held out his hand. A rat jumped on it and crawled up his arm like lightning, black eyes glaring. He struck it off. 
The brown writhing thing heaved itself to its feet, and Mark screamed and put his hands to his temples. Jimmy Cody's face was shredding before his eyes. One eye socket was dark and lightless. A rat was spread-eagled across his left cheek, tearing at his ear. They were crawling in and out of his shirt, and now two brown rivers of them were moving up to where Mark stood. In a moment, they'd be on him. King himself said in a 1983 Playboy interview that he loved that scene, but his editor said there was no way Doubleday would publish something like that, and he eventually called it censorship. I don't know that it was necessarily censorship, but it is a damn shame that that's not the climax of the book. It really would have improved things a bit and added a sense of danger to the final climax. Later in the book, when Mark and Ben return to take care of Barlow, they have to face these rats and wade through them. And now we've seen how harsh the rats can be. In the final draft, Mark and Ben are able to kill the head vampire rather easily. But in these early drafts, the path to Barlow's coffin is an exciting action scene. To keep the rats back, the two heroes use bug sprayers filled with holy water, a precursor to the water guns and super soakers movie would use in the 80s and beyond to ward off vampires. But their water starts to get low, and the rats are closing in. It's just a far more exciting climax to the novel than the final draft has, and the one instance where all this cut material is superior to the original. Now again, these cutscenes weren't the only addition to the republished Salem's Lot. The 30th anniversary printings also contained two Stephen King short stories. The first, entitled One for the Road, takes place after the events of this novel, and lets us know what happened to the town after Mark and Ben left for good. The second story, Jerusalem's Lot, is an epistolary story that takes place hundreds of years before this book. Both were collected in King's Night Shift in 1978, but we'll be reviewing these three Salem's Lot movie adaptations at now playing one per week, so each week here at Books and Nachos, I'll be reviewing one of these short stories before we move on to King's next published novel, The Shining. Now, Salem's Lot was adapted fairly faithfully to two TV miniseries, once in 1979 and again in 2004. You can hear my reviews of those, as well as Return to Salem's Lot, a movie barely released in theaters and barely associated with King's novel, at NowPlayingPodcast.com. But those aren't the only adaptations of Salem's Lot. In 1995, for Salem's Lot's 20th anniversary, BBC Radio 4 did an old-style radio play of Salem's Lot. This three-and-a-half-hour production was recently revived and aired by the podcast Horror Tales. If you're familiar with any radio dramas, this one has all the same trappings. The hammy line deliveries, the dialogue that explains what someone is doing as there are no visuals, and sporadic music and special effects. It was a full-cast drama versus an audiobook, and perhaps most notably, Doug Bradley, most known for playing Pinhead in Hellraiser, did the voice of Barlow. Also strangely... The drama uses lots of licensed music, including Bruce Springsteen, and the climax of the drama is set to Metallica's Unforgiven. I'm sure that wasn't cheap to do, but the Metallica piece really does heighten the mood at the end. While the performances in the piece really gave me pause to recommend listening, I can say that from a writing standpoint, it's the best adaptation of King's novel to date. It abridges the story heavily. It must, dropping the vast majority of towny characters and combining several others but it keeps the main story intact. Plus, drama writer Gregory Evans has the smarts to change Ben's gang's name away from the Bloody Pirates. If you want to hear the entire radio drama, I will link to Horror Tales' website from ours at booksandnachos.com. So with two King books down and so many more to go, 
I've enjoyed both tremendously, while finding a few flaws that are more about King's writing technique than the stories themselves. And I hope you've enjoyed hearing this review and analysis. And if you have, or if you haven't, please let me know. As you might imagine, these reviews take quite a bit of work, and I do them in the hopes that you, the constant listener, will engage me in conversation about these books. You can email me at arnie, A-R-N-I-E, at booksandnachos.com, or come to our forums. A link is at the Books and Nachos homepage. I'd love to hear your thoughts on Salem's Lot and on this podcast. You can hear me again this week at nowplayingpodcast.com, reviewing the 1979 miniseries of Salem's Lot, and I'll be back here at Books and Nachos next week with a review of Stephen King's short story, One for the Road. And until then, please remember to support your local bookstore. Thank you for listening to Books and Nachos. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes, and you can catch back episodes at our website, booksandnachos.com. The music for Books and Nachos is The Right Prescription by Chai Weapon, which can be downloaded at podsafeaudio.com. Books and Nachos is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2013, all rights reserved.